For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's Sunday, March 6, 2022, and welcome to the fourth episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show. You can download this show now as an audio podcast as well, in addition to the daily 5-Minute News podcast, which is on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Joining us today is author, columnist, futurist, and host of the You Don't Know Me podcast, Chloe Comby, and mental health professional, expert in undue influence tactics, and author of four books, including The Cult of Trump, and host of the Influence Continuum podcast, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Well, as is typical on the weekend show, we have several topics making the headlines to analyze, including Iowa banning transgender girls from female sports, uh, Florida banning abortions after 15 weeks, and the former Attorney General, William Barr, who now believes that former President Donald Trump was responsible for the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6. But first, let's turn to the Russian invasion in Ukraine. This is after the shelling at Europe's largest nuclear power plant on Thursday. Uh, Russia announcing that they're blocking access to Facebook on Friday. And also the propaganda effort to convince Russians that Ukraine is the aggressor. I'm keen to talk about the star quality of the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. But first, let's turn to the dictator-in-chief, Vladimir Putin. Uh, he has signed a bill introducing uh, a prison sentence uh, today of up to 15 years for spreading information that goes against the Russian government's position on the war in Ukraine. Uh, Stephen, let's start with you. You taught in Moscow. You have a Russian grandmother. Tell us about the techniques that Putin has used to maintain his iron grip on Russia over 20 years. So let me just qualify and say it was actually uh, when the Soviet Union fell that a group of psychologists and psychiatrists invited me to come over to teach about my work with undue influence in cults because so many Western cults were rushing into the former Soviet Union. So they wanted to understand it. And so I talked about my research in brainwashing and mind control and went through the criteria controlling behavior, controlling information, thoughts, and emotions to make people dependent and obedient. And the reaction of all of the experts uh, in psychology in Russia were, Dr. Hassan, don't you? And I'm not making a joke of their, their, their accent, but this is literally how they spoke in English. Dr. Hassan, do you understand you're explaining the whole system of pedagogy of the Soviet Union? Do you understand that we would imprison dissidents into psychiatric hospitals for criticizing the regime? And then finally they said, oh, so you are counseling us. 
And I was like, if the shoe fits, please, you know, if I can be of any service. And I very much had the experience of meeting um, uh, guidance counselors who had come in uh, from Siberia who had never met a Westerner. And when I met, when I got up in front of the huge room, I said, I understand I'm the first Westerner. You must have a million questions. Ask me anything. And there was dead silence. They looked like I was saying that the moon was made out of green cheese. And finally, someone said, you, you don't understand. You teach and we take notes. And I was like, no, actually, the Soviet Union has fallen. Time to, to, to say you can ask questions. So what I want to say to your listeners is that this is the environment Vladimir Putin grew up in. He was trained as a KGB agent. And from my point of view, the authoritarian nature of the Soviet Union is like a political cult. And unfortunately, the leadership always turns out to be whoever winds up being in charge of an authoritarian place has malignant narcissist qualities, meaning they think that they're above the law, they have no empathy, they, everything's about attention for them, and they're paranoid and they're distrusting. So there's a list. I actually wrote a whole chapter in The Cult of Trump comparing Donald Trump with Jim Jones and Hubbard and Moon, the former leader of the cult that I was in for two and a half years. I'm very interested in how people, a mass of people, we're talking about big countries, you know, America and 70 million people voting for Trump. And in Russia, of course, we know they don't have legitimate elections. Otherwise, Vladimir Putin probably wouldn't be consistently reelected in the way that he has. But there is still this fundamental cult-like behavior from the citizens of these types of countries of course china it's clear we've seen we've seen insane videos of the way that they will behave you know in in um respecting president xi jinping when it comes to russia what is it about the people that have um that has caused them over time to buy into his world. And I want to reference very specifically a story that I read this morning, very sadly, about a, a young girl who's in uh, Ukraine and she's calling her Russian mother. She's Russian, calling her Russian mother uh, and saying, you know, we're being bombed here in Ukraine. And her mum refuses to believe it. And this girl is unable to convince her mum about the danger that she is in. What is Putin saying to these people? And how is it that with all the social media and with all of the chit chat that's around, how is it that people don't know the truth? Because we need information as human beings that inform us. And when you're in, in, in growing up in an environment like that and all the information is controlled, you are in an environment of fear and guilt where you know that your neighbor may turn you in, a member of your own family may turn you in. And so my experience when I was there as well as, and my books have been published in Russian, I should add, well, there's this kind of dual identity notion where people know that the government's totalitarian, but they have to play the game and be a good citizen. Otherwise, they're afraid of being punished. Um, and um, But the more exposure people have to Western values, democracy, other sources of information, 
especially if they've had been educated abroad, the better off they're going to be to be able to reality test. But in, in the end, people um, are human beings and they respond to authority, especially when they're being threatened with 15 years, as you just were saying the, the law was passed, to try to stop basically an, a revolution, which I think needs to happen in Russia to get rid of this, this madman. Chloe, let me ask you about the social media movement that is behind a lot of what we're seeing. I mean, I was watching a TikTok video this morning of some Ukrainians who'd captured a Russian tank and they were joyriding it and having a whale of a time, like hooray, hooray, and videoing themselves. I mean, this was a brand new perspective on a, on a war that I feel completely helpless about. H how do you think young people are processing this compared to, say, the mother in Russia who refuses to believe that Ukraine is the aggressor? Well, very differently, because uh, as, as Stephen was correctly saying, that there's you know, been decades of them being subject to extremely controlled media and an extremely controlled narrative that was from one specific, very controlled point of view. And what social media fundamentally has done, you know, pretty much for anyone under the age of 30, social media is their media. And for lots of young people, they don't engage with traditional media at all. So what social media has done is it's removed the gatekeepers. Obviously, there's, there's still the, kind of the owners of the platform, like the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Jack Dorseys, but they don't control the narrative. So if you buy a newspaper from, you know, even from democratic countries, that newspaper has a very specific kind of, you know, political ideology or wants to, you know, get out a specific message or point of view, or you watch television shows or podcasts or however you consume your media. Um, but on social media, there are no gatekeepers. There's not any editors or newsroom editors saying that this is the narrative that's going out. Everybody has a soapbox and everybody gets to kind of effectively put out their point of view, which isn't to say all points of view are good or accurate. And of course, there's lots of misinformation on social media. Because young people foremost go on social media, they can access multiple points of view and they're not subject to this one very, you know, controlled point of view that's often very much intended to make the leader look in a very sort of strong um and I get you know an authoritarian and pure way. Um, so it, it's I think it's really changed the war even from twenty years ago because in as much as I know that the Russian government are trying to control the narrative and of course it's really excessive move today to shut down Facebook, they're not being wholly successful at all because young people basically consume the, the type of media and where they go and the way they exchange information is not something that a government you know it's a bit like trying to sweep back the tide. So though I think um, they you know they are trying to control social media, that's not entirely possible. So the generationally speaking, the difference is that young people are getting this narrative from social media that's all over the world and many points of view and older people are still very much subject even if they do go on social media they're still much more subject to the, the the kind of old media and the old narrative and that's where you get kind of the generational dissonance and the generational difference and I mean you see that in democratic countries uh, that the consumption of media is very different generationally speaking and I think that it's kind of a, you, the, the tip of the spear really here because they're actually at war and it's a really good demonstration of how most media and information is both consumed and believed generationally. Putin used to put out 
photographs before social media of him stripped to the waist sitting on a horse. And so, you know, even he had a kind of uh, a visual that he wanted to put out there of the strong man, because, of course, you know, we use the word strong man now to describe a, a, an autocrat or, or, or such. Uh, and he's definitely that. But let's just flip this for a second and talk for a moment about the goody. And that is Volodymyr Zelensky. We're talking about a, a young man in his 40s who is a former actor and comedian, you know, impersonated a former president and then ran as a joke to be the president and got elected the president. I mean, this guy is charismatic. He's confident. He's handsome. He knows how to use social media. But more importantly, he has become a kind of unlikely hero in this war and people all around the world are rooting for him Stephen yeah I'm totally rooting for him and he said no to Donald Trump when Trump was trying to coerce him to uh, uh, you know with the, the funds for the defense um, materials etc um, all I can say is that deep down inside we have our higher self and our lower self and we have moments where we can aspire to be our best self. And he's really proven that he can rise to this challenge. And he's motivating people around the world to have courage to stand up against uh, dictators and cult leaders. Chloe, do you feel that, um, you know, he's the right guy at the right time? Because my fear is that we're putting a lot of heat on him right now. You know, he's out in the streets doing selfie videos in Kiev, you know, he is public enemy number one, right? Putin obviously wants to have him assassinated, wants to install a, a Russian leader uh, in Kiev and, and, and take the country that way. I mean, what would be the effect, and I don't want to tempt fate, of course I don't, of, of Zelensky kind of, he said he's prepared to lose his life over this. But if that was the case, I mean, how do young people, how do they how do they qualify this in their minds? I mean, we've never lived through a war. A whole generation of people haven't lived through a war that is effectively being televised on their mobile devices. Well, I actually think he's been very clever um, in his use of, of social media and effectively his use of celebrity because he's, he's kind of utilised his celebrity and his understanding of modern media to turn himself into kind of both a heroic figure and something of a cultish figure. And obviously the recognition of him and his appearance on social media is such that if he was to kind of vanish in an hour, you know, in, in, in places where that, that often happens, it would immediately be notable. And effectively what he's sort of, he's done is he's become the first social media war hero, if you like. He's this sort of, almost this kind of Chichilian figure for the TikTok age, which is really, really interesting. And I also think he represents I think a, a change in, in a number of things um, uh, in what we consider to be heroism, but actually what we consider to be kind of like almost masculine qualities, because he in some ways kind of eschews that kind of traditional masculinity that you expect in leaders like Putin or war heroes. You see he's seen playing with his daughters. He loves his wife. He's an actor. He he is, is openly said that he's not particularly religious. He's Jewish and all those things. And in, in some ways is symbolic of lots of things that autocratic, very traditional leaders really, really don't like and actually work against. So, it, it, so I think he's a really interesting and really quite transformational figure because he has become this heroic wartime uh, symbol and I think he's become a kind of a symbol of 
basically how much we've changed as, as a world and as a people and as what we look for in our leaders, which I think is, is really interesting. But I think it, it is extraordinary that we're literally watching the emergence of our first ever social media war hero. And that, I mean, that's kind of, it's, it's a once in a lifetime first thing. So it's whatever else you think of it, and I'm sure older generations think that it's not the right way to do war, but it's the world we live in now. And I think it's a really fascinating moment to watch. And he is indeed a very fascinating figure. And I feel the same way. I just, you know, I, I, I applaud him. I think he's incredibly brave. Yeah. And I really want to highlight what you just said about heroism. We need people to look up to who have integrity and conscience and empathy and who care about women's rights and children's rights. So for me, you know, the term cult, it can be used along the influence continuum from ethical leadership to, you know, authoritarian, cultish leadership. I really think he's on the ethical, you know, heroic side. And I think that we should be inspired to action, all of us, even if we're not in physically in Ukraine, we can be doing so much to support the people there and to put pressure on encouraging the Russian citizenry to throw off this dictator. Somebody asked me yesterday what I thought of Joe Biden, and I didn't give any detail. I just said, I'm just thrilled that we have a leader who's not a fascist. And I really feel like that's where it's come to now, in not just here in the United States, but you know, in, in Turkey or in Brazil or any of these places where you have an increasing um, populist leader. I mean, even the United Kingdom to a certain extent. I'd be careful how I say that. But uh, I recognize the fact that this populist fascism, where it's like fascism with a small f, that where they are able to embrace these types of um, policies and present them in a way that seems less authoritarian. Authoritarian. So, Anthony, well, if I may, you, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'd like to flip the way you verbalized that he's not a fascist to he's he's an ethical person who will say, "I don't know," or "We're doing the best that we can," and is not a pathological liar who thinks he's above the law. So, I want to give a little support or a lot of support to Joe Biden and his administration. And really, you know, there's been not been enough good publicity, in my opinion. And we really need to realize how dramatically messed up the country was when he took over his presidency. The normal transitions were not there. The, 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 the entire infrastructure of the executive branch was gutted, as well as you know, enemies of the United States were put into places of, you know, intelligence even. We have to clean out the mess of, of Donald Trump. So I want to applaud President Biden and say, look, we need to rally together as a people and realize we're on one planet and we can't afford a nuclear incident in Ukraine because radiation is blown around the world, you know? There was a very interesting interview with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman the other day. He was, of course, the, the guy who blew the whistle on the perfect phone call between Donald Trump and uh, Vladimir Zelensky. As you said, he was, he was basically 
blackmailing him saying we're not going to give you the weapons unless you investigate hunter biden and you know there was a whole there was a whole horrific story there and vinman was the one who kind of stepped up and vinman is now saying that you know because there are on the right-wing media they're saying that if trump was still the president there wouldn't be an invasion in ukraine because of course you know he sided with putin he befriended him and in a way well, Putin had already won. He didn't need to invade Ukraine because he basically owned America under Donald Trump. So let's just talk about for a second a little bit about that. And Chloe, maybe you can explain from you're, you're in the UK, but from you know Europe's perspective on this. You know, do you think that people can make that correlation between Donald Trump Trump's presidency here in America and the destabilization of the world since? Well, absolutely, because, I mean, I think what what's fairly obvious is that Russia has effectively been at war with the world and it's been an information war for a decade and extremely successfully. And that success is manifested in essentially the destabilisation of the world. And it's not there for debate. It's absolutely been proven by intelligence services that there was Russian influence in the American election, the Brexit election, and, the, the, you know, even things like the vaccination um, argument and all kinds of kind of elections around the world and and in some countries less or more successfully than the others. So I think that the correlation between, you know, Trump and Putin and, 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 and actually where we find ourselves and actually now at this sort of tipping point of war absolutely is connected because this is feels like it's 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 a kind of conspiracy of destabilization that's happened very succinctly. And very successfully. Um, so I think, from, you know, from from our point of view, this almost feels like kind of it, it doesn't feel like the beginning of something. It feels like the middle or the end point of something. And I think that 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 is felt quite a lot um, throughout Europe. And like and going to sort of you know the the Donald Trump issue. I mean, it effectively from what it looked like in Europe, and obviously our information and news probably is disseminated somewhat differently in the United States. But it looked like that. I mean. He was so suspiciously indulgent of Putin, um, and and there was all kinds of theories about it. And I won't, you know, get into those because you know it, then you sort of become you know theorizing about things that you don't definitively know. But it, it, he was so indulgent of Putin. I think the question was, would it have been worth him? going to war effectively with Ukraine, as you said, because he already seemed to have one of the most powerful nations and men's or, men already on his side. Um, so I think, but absolutely from our point of view, I mean, I think the word that you hear over and over again is chaos. And and it seems to me that the, the Putin regime, at the very least, has sown and reaped chaos on the world in a very successful and really worrying way. And sometimes it's a bit weird that people seem less worried about it than perhaps they should be. And and actually the, the response is, has been somewhat tepid in learning. And, you know, our government have kept back the Russia report. And obviously there was lots of withholding from from in the United States of information. But it, it feels very, very chaotic and, and, and a deeply sort of troubling time. And if I may say, I interviewed Craig Unger and Yuri Schwetz. Craig wrote a book called American Compromat with a K, Compromat, which is the Russian term for blackmail. Uh, and Yuri Schwetz was an active KGB agent when the Soviet Union fell and emigrated to the United States. And he said that Trump had been cultivated as an asset by the Soviet Union way earlier as they would try to recruit any wealthy American business person, and they would love to videotape 
you know, uh, with prostitutes doing all kinds of things that they could blackmail people with. And in my book, I, the research that I had showed that, that, that uh, Putin was a puppet master over Donald Trump and many other examples that will come out more clearly once we can clear away all this social media disinformation and AI algorithms that bad actors are foisting on us. Stephen, is this why Trump was constantly denying any relationship with Russia? And he coined the phrase, you know, the old Hitler trope, say it three times and it becomes true, Russia, 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 is because he didn't realize that he was a Russian asset because he, A, he didn't have an intellect and B, his ego didn't allow for it. Correct. And narcissists are very easy to manipulate. You just say things that flatter the person and offer them transactional things that are in their advantage. Uh, he, it, Trump is not an intelligent, you know, person. He's not educated. And um, so but the, the point my point in the cult of Trump is that Trump got elected based on 50, 60 years a very intentional creation of entities, think tanks, and other um, uh, uh, structures to dismantle democracy and to install uh, this sovereign citizen libertarianism, dismantle regulations, global climate change. That's a hoax, huh? Who's paying for that? Oh, Russia paid $100 million to an American PR firm over 10 years. Did you know that? In Washington, D.C. And the Kochs and other oil-bearing people and entities want to keep saying global climate change isn't real. It's just like a version of the tobacco industry saying, oh, it doesn't cause cancer, when they knew it was causing cancer and killing endless numbers of people. I want to continue on this theme because there's a few stories from the week that we covered on 5-Minute News that made me feel very sad. One was obviously the Florida banning most abortions after 15 weeks. Now, let's remind ourselves that Roe v. Wade, which was a landmark ruling, was 1973. Well, that's like 47 years ago, right? So, I mean... It's almost as if Florida, Ron DeSantis, as we know, who's the governor there, is, uh, you know, mini Trump, some would say. Some say he's much smarter than Trump and has used Trump to his advantage. But we can talk about that as well. So there's that story coming out of that there. There's Iowa, a story about uh, transgender girls being banned from female sports. And it wasn't just that story because it's strangely not a big issue. There's not a lot of girls uh, or transgender girls in Iowa that want to compete in sports. So it's not so much the subject. It's the fact that the governor, and there's a photograph on the front of the Courier, which is their local newspaper, of, of Governor Kim Reynolds signing House File 2416 at the state capitol uh, on Thursday to ban transgender girls from participating in female sports, surrounded by white, blonde, smiley young women who are cheering her on, who are clapping. It's as if this right-wing movement to ban everything on the subject of women's rights, on gay rights, civil rights. I just felt very sad that these young girls who are surrounded around this female governor who's signing this into law, it's as if at the ages of 13, 14, 15, these girls are being indoctrinated into a life of hatred to 
to despise people who are not mainstream, who are not the same as them. And we had a similar story with Ron DeSantis getting up. This video went viral, you may remember from a few days ago, where he gets up to make a speech at a school and there's a bunch of kids still standing behind him with masks on. And he's like, take those masks off. They don't do anything. I'm sick of this COVID theater. Yeah, it was bullying children. Yeah, with children. So yet again, children who look up to people like governors and presidents, they are the role models. And yet there is an increasing shift to the far right, to the extreme right. There is no moderate conservatism anymore. So really my question, and, and Chloe, maybe you can start us off with this, is why is there this desire amongst some groups to take us back to the 1950s? I guess that was a time when those particular groups had complete, you know, privilege and, and were essentially top of the, uh, the the hierarchy. But I think, I mean, what's really interesting about, I think, the, the, the current climate, and this particularly trickles down to young people, and I think it's d- deeply worrying, is the culture that we live in anymore is what I call team sports thinking. That we don't measure anything anymore on the basis of facts or right or wrong, or we assess a particular situation to think, you know, I agree with this side this time and this side the other time. We effectively are asked to join teams of, of thought and, and, and teams of a political side and, and, and teams of an ideological side. And irrespective of what that side does, if they behave, behave appallingly, if they behave badly, if they, you know, abuse the other side, if they do terrible things, you stay with your team and you never, ever leave that side. And, and, and it's not enough anymore that your team wins. You want the ultimate humiliation and loss of the other side. And that team sports thinking is, is, is trickling down and kind of, you know, weaving its way into every kind of sort of aspect and genre and, 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 and the places we think. And it's incredibly dangerous because what it's doing is it's removing intellectual thought and it's inhibiting, in, inhibiting intellectual debate. And it's effectively saying you will always stay with your teams. Um, and I, I mean, and, and that really, I think, is, is massively being fueled and fed by the political culture. And I think in, on a very kind of mercenary way, of course, young like politicians are targeting young people because number one if you get them young you get them for life but also it's it has that kind of real emotional pull doesn't it when when you when you film things with young people if you take or, or, or news stories include young people it has that kind of emotional and ideological kick that really strengthens your kind of argument and your side and I, and 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 it and it kind of gives it kind of this kind of glamour and gravitas that young people are joining our cause and it's you know why you you do get these extremist groups that particularly target young people because young people are always the most passionate and they're, and, and they're always the one that will sort of carry the torch and really literally and metaphorically go to fight for that side so inevit- inevitably political sides want young fighters on their teams and 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 it, and it's and it's kind of becomes this sort of arena sports but it's incredibly ugly and it's anti-intellectual and it's actually making us kind of more limited and and stupider and narrow, narrow in every possible way Stephen, is is the cult that you write about of trump and of the right and i often talk about how patriotism gave way to nationalism which gave way to extremism and nazism and 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 the embracing of all of the 
the the the far right behavior that used to be ignored by the the center right it's all now come together because of trump but my question really is is the left also a cult if the right is a cult is the left also a cult so this is such a rich conversation and i'm appreciating your comments chloe very much there's so much that i can say first of all i'm against authoritarianism on the left and the right so a lot of my work is with Marxist cults. I mean, the Chinese Mao's thought reform programs, the Cultural Revolution, the people who studied the, that uh, brainwashing and China continues brainwashing programs, it's a left-wing cult, right? So the, the point isn't to think left or right anymore, but authoritarianism versus human rights and rule of law. So that's one point I want to make. Another critical point I want to make is that in my research for the book, I learned about something called the Manhattan Declaration. You say, what's that, Steve? Well, it was a coming together of Catholic and Protestant, uh, 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 what's the right word, um, extremists, and they, even though they hated each other and the Protestants thought the Catholic Church was satanic, etc., they came together for political purposes for three overlapping targets. Women's rights to choose, uh, gay rights or getting rid of gay rights, and religious freedom, which in their mind means the freedom to discriminate against everyone who isn't thinking like them. So... This, but this was decades in the making of this uh, coming together of money and power to push a political agenda that is fighting against, you know, human rights and gay rights and women's rights, etc. And then lastly, I want to talk about fourth and fifth generation warfare. What's that? Well, it's psychological warfare and I wrote about this in The Cult of Trump, in 1980, an American military strategist, William Lind, talked about a psychological warfare program designed to delegitimize leaders and institutions and even science itself to create confusion, disorientation, so that authoritarianism can, 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 can enter and this fellow, this military strategist, connected with Paul Weirich of the Christian right to put this agenda on the American public as well as the world. So if, if when people can step back and go, oh, there are wealthy, powerful people who are deliberately trying to stir us up to distrust each other, to create mass confusion, to dismantle democratic institutions and checks and balances, then all of a sudden the, the noise dissipates and we can see with some clarity over what we're dealing with. And this is the way we're going to solve it, is by understanding what's actually happening behind the scenes. But this is America. I mean, this is the thing that frustrates me so much. And I speak as an immigrant. You know, I chose to move to America because it is the land of the free and because all of my favorite artists are from here, the greatest writers and, and, and authors and directors and actors and filmmakers. And, you know, all of my favorite stuff come, you know, in popular culture comes from America. And yet 
it seems to be a country that is falling foul of misinformation at such a rate. And whether it's to do with historic, uh, you know, failure in education, as we know, America sits like way down there in the in the 30s or something on, on in, in terms of world education standards, or whether it's to do with this concept, which I call hereditary voting, where if your parents vote conservative, they indoctrinate you into doing that. And people tend or young people tend not to break out of that. I voted conservative because my parents did, certainly for the first few years that I was, uh, you know, eligible to vote. And so I really feel like, you know, America shouldn't be happening here. Of all the countries, I don't know why, but I, I feel like it shouldn't be happening here. But yet I'm seeing it happen to my family in the United Kingdom. And we're seeing it, obviously now we're seeing it in, uh, you know, what's happening in Ukraine is the effect of this type of propaganda. So, Chloe, maybe you can answer this. I mean, you know, how is it that in, in the land of the free, people are falling foul of this, of, of stuff that people were falling foul of decades ago, according to Stephen? Well, I think fundamentally, I mean, what, number one, I think it's this really curious, this idea of, of you know, the, the, particularly the, the right wing has always been this, this these parties and bodies of personal freedom. And it's the behave completely antithetically because now they want to kind of get involved in the personal and absolute you know individual individualistic decisions about people's bodies and sex lives and family lives and how they raise their children and whether they vaccinate themselves so i don't really see that they can call themselves in any way as, as you said you know conservative <clears throat> or even libertarian anymore but i think what what's happened and i think this is a you know a function of possibly sort of social media misinformation and living online and, and obviously a great deal of anxiety about the world is you so fear and you, you make people incredibly fearful about the world and the people around them, the people different about them and the things happening in the world. And then you say, I alone can fix those things. And that was a line I believe Donald Trump used. That's I, right. I the American dream is dead. I alone and, can fix it. That's right. And, 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 and people sort of think, well, um, the, the the sacrifice of, of personal choices and personal responsibility seems like a good sacrifice to make if this person or this body or this political party can take away my fear. And, and interestingly, I think that that's the sort of psychology that's been employed by Putin. I think it was very much a, 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 a technique that was employed by all kind of autocratic and authoritarian governments in the past. And to some extent, you're seeing it all across Europe. And what's really interesting is I think, and this, this is purely me being observational here, is that I think that Putin possibly thought that, you know, th through this misinformation we were talking about, that, that, that sort of distrust and hatred and misinformation and chaos had reached a fever pitch and this whole kind of Ukraine thing was going to be an easy thing but I think we're at an interesting point now that I actually might think it's been like the frog in the saucepan and the heat's been turned up too high and people have suddenly said actually we really quite like democracy and we don't like autocratic leaders and we need to come back together and we actually need to sort of kind of get involved and not be kind of no you know man's an island and I'm not being there for my neighbour in another country so this is a really interesting point that actually we have had a decade of dislike your neighbour, distrust people are difficult for you, give away your liberties and your personal choices. But all of a sudden, the heat's come up too high and people have suddenly sort of said, actually, I don't think this is a good sacrifice. And actually, we might need to start fighting again for liberty and unity and all those good things that the West and America originally should have represented. Yeah, and the messaging needs to change for all those people who are defending Putin and thinking Russia is a great thing, 
You have freedom to say that and not worry about being put in jail for 15 years, buddy or ma'am. Excuse me. You want your gun rights? If you walk around with a gun in Russia, you go to jail for decades. And this but is the interesting thing about sacrifice, about that. isn't it? That the, the, these very people that you're describing are the ones who felt that being forced to wear a mask was an infringement of their freedom or being forced or suggested, not mandated, to get a vaccination was in some way an infringement of their civil liberties. And yet they choose to support and follow an autocrat in Donald Trump and now, as we're hearing increasingly in right-wing media, the support of Vladimir Putin. Yep. So if I may come back to an earlier point with that Chloe made about how young people are thinking in terms of us versus them and team sports, one of the social psychological experiments that I teach my clients and the public is a very important thing called the Ash Conformity Study. And very briefly, this is a study that's been replicated for decades. People are brought in a room. They're told it's a visual perception experiment. Somebody at the front has a placard with four lines on it, a sample line and three other lines of different sizes. And they go around the room saying, which is the correct line, the same size line? But the person who's the subject doesn't know everyone's in on the experiment except them. And, and so the, the experiment was how many people, even though they can see what the right answer is with their own eyes, will start to give the wrong answer just to fit in to the group. And the answer very uniformly is two-thirds of everyone doing this experiment start giving the wrong answer because it's too uncomfortable to be the heroic resistor and say, no, <laughs> or let's get up and measure the damn sucker. A two-inch line equals a two-inch line. But when I share this experiment with people, the lights start to turn on. That they, if they're watching something and they don't agree, they should be the heroic resistor, not just, you know, like, yeah. gee, every, uh, maybe my eyes need, my glasses need changing. No, like, measure the sucker. And the interesting thing about that is I think that that kind of desire to follow the crowd and conform has always been a very typical feature of being an adolescent. People, it's very difficult to be the kind of the walk the lone path in all kinds of ways. But I think what the the kind of the modern world and all of this kind of you know fear breeding is it's infantilized all of us and 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 this anti intellectualism of I I support my team and I don't think for myself and I fear this because I'm told to and I'm not going to be I'm going to live my life how it's prescribed to a political party is infantilizing and what's really interesting particularly on social media is the adolescent way we all behave now it's incredibly adolescent um, behavior again and again and again. And leaders, not all leaders, but leaders increasingly in behaving in this incredibly infantile, insulting each other, lying, fibbing, you know, all those kind of things that used to associate with teenagers. And I think all of this, again, you know, on a sort of from a different psychological point of view, all of this misinformation, all of this sort of very prescribed way of living and taking away liberties and asking people not to think for themselves fundamentally 
it's made infants and it's infantilized all of us. And that's quite a dangerous place to be in as you well. You make a very astute observation, Chloe. I really want to commend you. It's absolutely spot on. In fact, when I was in a cult, I regressed to a more childlike mentality um, directly. And what we are talking now for a second about is developmental psychology from childhood to adulthood, right? And the goal of raising kids is to help them be adults, to individuate to adulthood. But the developmental psychology when you're an adult is the ability to hold many different worldviews at the same time and pick out of the complexity of reality what is real and what fits for your understanding versus this very childish, black and white, us versus them mentality. So spot on, Chloe. And, and this is part of the problem. And I agree, Chloe nailed it. And that's why she's on this show, because she, she's super smart, is, is that, you know, I spoke to somebody and, and I was like, where do you get your news? And she said to me, well, I watch a bit of Fox and I watch a bit of CNN and I kind of pick and choose what's true. And I said, well, you, it doesn't work like that because, you know, arguably Fox isn't true at all. So you can't pick anything from that. It's just propaganda. And I fear that, you know, this echo chamber, which we often talk about with social media and with our news, and which is partly why I start, which is exactly why I started Five Minute News, you know, like a daily factual, these are the three most important things happening in the world, and they have to be true, as my background is coming from the UK, where the news has to be true. And we, we don't have, or we'd never traditionally had, opinion channels. And uh, sadly, that's what we have here in, in the US. Um, I just finally want to talk uh, for a moment about the former Attorney General, William Barr. Uh, he's gone and done a, an interview with NBC, and uh, he said that he believes that former President Donald Trump was responsible for the attack on the U.S. Capitol on the 6th of January 2021. He said, I do think he was responsible in the broad sense of that word in that it appears that part of the plan was to send his group up to the hill. Now, Stephen, you can help us with this a little based on your research for your book, The Cult of Trump. Everybody that seems to have been like arrested and, and interviewed, you know, insurrectionists, says, he made me do it. My president made me do it. The guy in the red hat said he was coming with us. You know, is it is it as simple as that? I mean, is the insurrection a kind of distraction? And when I refer to the insurrection, I'm talking about the, the riot, the storming of the U.S. Capitol. Is that a distraction from the bigger picture, which is that Trump tried to overturn the election? Should we be looking at one and not the other? Or is this all part of this, you know, this man who galvanized his movement to believe his lies. Oh, no. I, I actually wrote in 2019 in my book that if Trump wasn't reelected, there would be violence. And I actually cited Jim Jones and talked about how he assassinated Congressman Leo Ryan, who had gone to Guyana to save people. Um, no, this was all, I mean, and Michael Cohen, who's former Trump attorney, said he's not leaving office, like forget, don't even think about that he's going to voluntarily leave, leave the office. I just want to state categorically, I think William Barr is a dangerous person. He's involved, as I wrote in my book, with a Catholic uh, cultish group called Opus Dei, who is on their board of directors in D.C., he was in charge when the worst Soviet infiltration spy, Robert Hansen, was revealed. 
and covered up the opus or minimized the opus day connection. So there's a whole, yes, he was correct that Trump was behind the insurrection and the claim that the election was a fraud, but there's a deeper story here of deep corruption, unfortunately. Chloe, do you think, because uh, I often think about how news is, American news is transmitted in the UK and, and, and in Europe generally. And I try and watch the European news channels to see, you know, and a lot of the attitude was that Trump was just a bit of a comedian, you know, he's like this comedy character, let's not take him too seriously. A little bit like Boris Johnson, you know, if like you, you elect a clown, you're going to get a circus. So do you think it's, has it really embedded into the psyche of Europeans that actually he is and was as bad as Putin or as bad as any of these dictators from history that people often compare him to? Probably not enough. And I, I, and I think what's interesting is that they, those kind of figures and, and, and they, they, they do these incredibly authoritarian figures and sneak things in. And I think it's there's a bit of it's a smokescreen precisely because people don't take them seriously enough. But again, it goes back to the Zelensky point that we have these very, very fixed assumptions about things like masculinity or power or actually what makes a dictator. And I think what the mistake we've made is we have such a fixed idea about what a dictator looks like that they have to be incredibly serious and authoritarian and make incredibly serious, thoughtful speeches and um, to crowds that it, it's it's almost like we can't see that authoritarianism and authoritarian figures can come in other guises. And because Trump is a ridiculous figure and wears you know ridiculous amounts of makeup and has a gaudy gold toilet, and because Boris Johnson has silly hair and cracks jokes and says inappropriate things, and because people not me personally, but lots of people think that they're kind of guys that you want to have a beer with. They don't associate that kind of Hitler, Stalin-esque uh, qualities and behaviour with those figures. But it's the same thing as Zelensky, but from a good way. We have to, I think, start renegotiating our perception of what both good and bad power looks like. Because if we don't do that, and we don't actually start to understand those things have evolved and changed the bad things will sneak in and they already have done and we can't see the good things for what they are. And I think it's really, really important at this point. And you're seeing this with a lot of young people. I interview thousands of young people that we, they are really evolving quickly with this renegotiations of power, good and bad power. But I think perhaps old people actually, because they have such fixed ideas and they're quite myopic about those ideas that they don't see them perhaps until they're too late. And I think Trump is a really good example of that. Okay, thank you so much. My thanks to Chloe Comby and to Dr. Stephen Hassan. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast and also the 5-Minute News Daily podcast, which drops in the early hours every morning. So it's there when you wake up and you can listen to it whilst you make your morning coffee. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.